Diversification in agriculture comes in many forms these days, including some that are a bit unexpected. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a podcast that looks at agriculture issues across the country. I'm Willie Vocher, host and editorial director for Farm Progress. Farmers are looking for new income opportunities, and for crop producers, that can be somewhat challenging. For example, in North Carolina, producers are looking for opportunities as the tobacco market changes. That's not so easy if you don't have a good alternative, and while corn and soybeans offer profit opportunities, could there be more? We discussed those opportunities with John Hart, Southeast Farm Press, who has discovered officials there are testing a wide range of options, including one that perhaps is more familiar on a hamburger bun than in a crop field. That would be sesame. Then we turn our attention to something completely different. Jennifer M. Latsky with Kansas Farmer has profiled a farmer raising a milpa garden. She discusses what a milpa garden is and why it not only benefits the community, but can help boost soil quality. It's a fascinating idea. But first, let's check in with John Hart at Southeast Farm Press to discuss sesame. Well, John Hart, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Thank you, Willie. Great to be here. Great. So, you know, whenever I connect with you, we talk about fascinating crops. I mean, we've had our discussions about peanuts and sweet potatoes and things like that. And we've done that all. And you just came back from a specialty crop workshop and you came across a crop that might be good for the Southeast that I never would have thought of. That's sesame. I never would have either. And it's actually it is grown in Georgia now. Uh, A couple of private companies contract with growers to grow sesame. But they're thinking about it in North Carolina as as a specialty crop because they're trying to get more crop diversity, grow more crops. And they have a full-time crop specialist, especially crop specialist in C State. And he's very excited about sesame. So for the past two years, he's been doing research on it and discovering if there's a way that it can be grown here. And he's optimistic that it can be. So bottom line, uh, next year, they'll be contracting with growers to do research on sesame, on, on farm research, and they're excited about the potential of growing sesame in North Carolina. <laughs> That's interesting. I, you know, it's interesting. I know quite a bit about sesame, but I don't even know what the plant looks like. So that's a different problem. I mean, does it, is it grow in rotation pretty well? Actually, that's one of the big strong suits is, is, is a rotational crop. And they say the big plus is, you know, nematodes are an issue here for yep. sweet potatoes. So the, the talk is that since sesame is nematode resistance, they'd like to grow it as a rotational crop with sweet potatoes and also as a good rotational crop with tobacco, which is still growing in North Carolina. Right, but that's part of the effort, right? Uh, the tobacco market's changing and these specialty crops like sesame are a way for income to stay up as that business kind of subsides. Exactly right, exactly right. For you know, tobacco growers still has a lot of challenges for tobacco farmers right now. So it's a, actually the state is directing, has a new initiative to encourage new, especially crops. And one of them is sesame. Hmm. That's interesting. And for those listeners on this, I mean, we think of sesame, well, it's on our hamburger bun because, you know, the famous saying for the Big Mac, and I won't say it again, right. but uh, we think about the sesame seed there. But sesame is a popular, first of all, an Asian food item. Um, sesame oil has been popular in Asian cooking for thousands of years. Right. Um, but, you know, one of the food foods that I like to eat that's become more popular is hummus. Um, and a key part of hummus besides chickpeas is tahini, which is just essentially 
uh, sesame butter. <laughs> so exactly, yeah. It's thicker, thinner, but the thinner than peanut butter. But anyway, but those are direct food crops, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons everybody's excited, right? Well, exactly right. You know, hummus also for bagels, and of course, the ever most famous sesame seed bun, those kind of things, yep. as well as the oil, you know, sesame seed oil. So there's lots of uses for it, and that's the big selling point, right? Because the demand is very, very strong, and the prices are good. So there is a lot of interest in it. And that's why these companies that are right now mainly working in Oklahoma and Texas are trying to expand the reach. So they're looking to the southeast. Do they have to do different varieties? Because, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are nothing like the Carolinas. I'm just going to be nice about that. Well, that's the challenge right now. There's aren't, there aren't any varieties developed right now. So they're still trying the Oklahoma and Texas varieties. It's going to take a little different management because – Oklahoma and Texas are so dry, that's different than North Carolina, which is a little more humid. So a real need here is going to be fungicides. You're mm-hmm. going to have to use fungicides for them. I mean, that's that's a given, and they're hoping that's going to help. But, but again, right now, there are no farmers in North Carolina growing it. That's that's going to hopefully happen next year, next year, and they'll find out exactly how it does work on farms. Because right now, it's just done at the research stations across the state. Right. Well, and you bring up fungicides. Anytime you have a crop like that in a state, to use any crop protection products, you're going to need a label for it. Well, exactly um, right. So you're not raising sesame in the Carolinas. You may not have a label to use, uh, you know, a popular fungicide that may be used already in Oklahoma and Texas, or maybe not. I don't know. So that's interesting. Exactly. So, so how do, okay, it, it grows in good rotation and it's cool. If you can break the nematode cycle for, uh sweet potatoes that's got to be a good thing but um, how do you harvest it i mean they say you basically just use the same combine you just change the setting and it's you can use the same equipment that you're currently using so so that's a big plus too okay it's a small seed so i assume yeah the canola head or something the canola sieve or something like that because of the small seeds yeah exactly because it's very very small seed so you could use a, a soybean or corn combine and just change the adjustment adjust the header yeah i'd be guessing i'd be guessing you're using a draper head or a standard bean head for a crop like this not a corn row head so oh exactly that's just right. a guess. yeah exactly yeah. right yeah so that's interesting from that standpoint is that the other question is and it's nice that you're going to contract this one of the areas that always gets complicated about this is where it would be processed that's that's another question that needs to be answered that's and those companies are going to work with the, the farmers to do it but that's still down the line, down the way a bit. I think it's fascinating to to look at that. But you're at this specialty crop event. Uh, what other crops did you talk about besides sesame? Well, mainly this event was it was the, the sesame field day, and they had several mm-hmm. of them across the state just to educate growers about the potential. Okay. Bottom line, it's all part back in uh, 2018, the uh, assembly passed a new and emerging crops program that was signed by Governor Roy Cooper with the ex- specific mission of growing new and emerging crops. And I guess that's the beauty of North Carolina is that the assembly in the, in the state government is very appreciative of agriculture and understands agriculture, you know, which is vital. So, so sesame is one of the, the crops we're looking at and looking at like purple carrots that you can use for dye, uh, heirloom tomatoes, you know, famous Carolina gold rice. You know, yeah. seedless muscadines, there's all kind of crops they're looking at. And, and, and bottom line, what happens is they're given research and education grants to try their hand at researching and growing these crops. 
and to see if they're going to work. And so Sesame is the one that's kind of, I guess you would say, the star of the show right now. You made a comment before we started recording that one of the things about Sesame is even if it doesn't yield well, I make money. Right. Well, you obviously you need to make a good yield, but it, well, yeah. you don't you don't need a, a, a huge yield to make money because right, the prices are so strong right now hmm. that you can still make a decent yield <laughs> and still make money. Because it's, it, bottom line, it's a very low input crop. It doesn't take a lot of nitrogen fertilizer and it doesn't take a lot of labor to harvest it. So that's the big plus too is is the low low input. But I guess one drawback is it's such a small seed and a small plant, and it doesn't compete with weeds. So you're going to have to use herbicides on it as well, because <laughs> weeds will be an issue. So that's another issue with, with sesame. Yeah, you know, you bring up a comment that I find interesting. Whenever anybody tells me a crop is low input, <laughs> right? Where, where I come from. If you say that and I'm still trying to get yield, you're going to have inputs. So, right. <laughs> how low it is depends on how they work out the economics because everybody's smart about that. But, yeah, and like I said, you know, the, you have to look at what herbicides you can use on a crop in the state because sesame's not grown in North Carolina and all those are state labels. But your experts are all over that. That's the good news about the way NC State works is they're all over that kind of stuff. Exactly right. And I guess as far as nitrogen, they say it just needs – 70 units for 70 pounds of nitrogen so that's really not a lot of nitrogen no. per acre so that is that is one plus yeah that's cool that's cool i mean it's just interesting how a crop like that could be out of the blue be something interesting i was interested interest, intrigued by the purple carrots and of course california gold rice we kind of walked away from that several years ago is that starting to come back it's been going in south carolina for for, for many years now and of course um more than 100 years ago in the I guess even the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was grown heavily along the eastern North Carolina coast. And then they got away from that. But now they have one one farmer who's through this program is growing it in Pamlico County on the eastern coast of North Carolina, hmm. the Carolina gold rice, which started out in Charleston you know, back in the 1700s. So they're they're trying their hand at that. And it's, it's doing quite well because of, of the ground is suited for it with all the rain they receive and the yeah. flat land so it's, it's it's been very successful that's an interesting crop i mean carolina gold rice has a fascinating history oh it does from yeah. the, the standpoint of the low country and you know when you go to charleston i think people might be surprised how important rice is in all the dishes there versus well, exactly other parts right. of the yeah. country and it's all because of that history and it's also still quite heavily grown around charleston too now yeah. they're trying to in North Carolina as well, yeah, or trying it again, trying rice again after being gone for more than 100 years. We'll take anything if it'll make money, right. and that's a good news, I think. That's a, well, and the other thing is you talk about any crops, you've got enough pest. Your pest profile in the southeast because of the warm weather and a lot of the rain um, is pretty intense. So anytime you can break a pest cycle, that's a big deal too. Oh, exactly right, yeah. So Plenty of pest here, <laughs> weeds, bugs. <laughs> Fungus, everything. It's a lot of pest. Mosquitoes. I don't want to talk about that, <laughs> but <laughs> that's for sure. So when you, you know, when you sit down and you're, or you're out traveling on field days, you get to see a lot of cool things. Because one of the things I think people need to realize is the Carolinas and Virginia, where you cover, are pretty diverse agricultural areas. You've got your cotton, you've got peanuts, you've got now obviously rice. You may have sesame someday. Um, it, it's just fascinating how this is evolving. What, how have, how do you look at it as a journalist? 
Well, actually, it's exciting as a journalist because there's so many different crops to cover. There's there's a new story every day, you would say. Uh, basically, they grow more than 80, 85 crops up here. Let's say cotton, <laughs> the big cotton, corn, and soybean, and wheat, the big ones, but also these specialty crops, such as sweet potatoes and other things like, you know, clary sage is one that, that's used for, like, for uh, pharmaceutical products, that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So there's several different specialty crops. And apples. And tomatoes are growing in the west, western North Carolina mountains. You know, uh, wine grapes are growing out there. So it's just really diverse. So it it's, makes my job very interesting for foreign <laughs> press. It is interesting. We appreciate the coverage in that area. You know, you mentioned heirloom tomatoes, and potentially that is an opportunity for crops. <laughs> There's a reason they're heirloom tomatoes. Right. Um, they don't harvest well. So that's that'll be an interesting development. Let's follow that. I think that'd be kind of fun to re- revisit sometime after you've talked to a couple of guys or gals trying to raise heirloom tomatoes at a commercial scale and how they might do that. That could be a fun story someday. And actually, they <laughs> you mentioned I did go to a field day this summer on on tomatoes, and, and they are doing research on, <laughs> on the heirloom tomatoes. And there are quite a few farmers in West North Carolina growing, Carolina growing them now, and they're having success with them. So it's That's so cool. there's, there's potential. There is potential. It's just there's challenging about harvestability and the efficiency of harvest, which makes them less, made it difficult to commercialize them for a long time. So it's cool to see how that might evolve. That's for sure. Well, it's good. Well, John Hart, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. The idea of Diverse crops and bringing sesame to the Carolinas is something that I don't think a lot of people even thought of as. I'm sorry, I didn't even think of it as a crop that you hear about too often. And then to find out it might be expanding is fascinating. It is fascinating. There's hope. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, buddy? We're in agriculture. There's always hope. Exactly. (laughs) For sure. Well, John Hart, great to talk to you. You have a super day and uh, we'll, we'll be in touch soon. Oh, thank you, Willie. I appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to John Hart and thank him for his look at sesame and also the other opportunities southeastern farmers are looking at as they seek to diversify. While some key rotations won't go away anytime soon, the opportunity for a diversified income may be interesting for more farmers. Next, we turn our attention to something called a milpa garden. Please note that you won't be planting your entire farm this way, though we've heard of advocates who think it's a good idea. Trust me, harvest would be impossible. However, there is an interesting benefit to the addition of a milpa garden to a farm, and Jennifer M. Latsky with Kansas Farmer offers insight on what she learned in a recent story, and she explains just what a milpa garden is. Well, Jennifer M. Latsky, welcome to Around Farm Progress. Well, hello there, Willie. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you. You know, this podcast is kind of looking at alternative crops, obviously, uh, the session we just listened to was uh, John Hart talking about sesame in the Carolinas. But your story that you were, you've worked on for November on alternative crops is really alternative. What is a milpa garden? Well, so I talked with a uh, Kansas farmer, uh, Mark Knopp, and he's in year two of planting a milpa garden. And milpa is... Uh, Some people may call it a a chaos garden or a hodgepodge garden, but what it is is it's a blend of um, multiple species of crops, uh, vegetable crops. There's uh, all sorts of of, uh, radishes. There's all sorts of taprooted crops, uh, pumpkins, uh, gourds. There's shard, all sorts of these 
vegetable crops and you plant them in a field about an acre to an acre and a half. Uh, they all grow together and you invite the community to come out and harvest your crops. It's a way to bring in cover cropping soil health properties to that part of your field, but also give back to your community. Interesting. So how, what is the benefit from, I mean, you know, I'm listening or talking with here with farmers or for farmers that run pretty big commercial operations when they listen to this, what is the benefit that Mark sees in this? Well, Mark has been uh, cover cropping for several years now, almost a decade. And he's been farming since the, the early nineties, actually late eighties, early nineties. So for him, he started out cover cropping uh, for him, it's the seed for a cover crop costs about, um, oh, $50 an acre or so. Uh, that's including the drilling, et cetera. When he's cover cropping and, and figuring out his cost of production, one application of a weed killer is about that $50 range. For him, cover cropping provides not only uh, soil protection, uh, but it also conserves moisture in that soil. So he's he's uh, shading that soil, he's shading the weeds out, he's adding moisture into the soil or, or preserving what's there, and he's also got a, a growing root that is providing nutrients to those microbes. So it's a soil health thing for him first off. But the millpaw garden aspect uh, takes that a step further. Uh, he goes in and he plants this garden and, and uh, provides it for the community. Um, it, it took him a little while to tweak what he's doing in the garden, uh, in the Millpar garden specifically, because you have so many different types of seeds. <laughs> and so when he goes in and he drills, he has to make sure he checks to make, uh, to make sure that that seed is getting to the ground at the right point in time and, and everything's coming out. Um, but really for him, it's about soil health and improving uh, not just what he's doing in the ground, but his yields as well. Well, it's a it's a small plot though. It's an acre, right? Okay. So he he works with a company called Green Cover Seed, mm-hmm. and uh, he got into this with through their uh, first um, it's their first acre program experience. And so what they do is they will donate. Um, provide free seed to any grower who wants to plant up to one acre of their Millpaw garden seed mix. In exchange for that, they just ask the grower to harvest and donate at least half of that harvested produce to local food banks, to the community, to the neighbors. And so what Mark did last year is he actually went online to the Facebook community page for his local community and said, hey, folks, this is what I'm doing. The crop should be harvestable at this point in time. He drops a pin on a on a map on on Google Maps and opens up the field to strangers. And it actually took off. Uh, there was actually one lady online last year who would go out on a regular basis and, and harvest whatever was in season at that point. And then she post recipes about how do I use Swiss chard? What does it look like in the field? Because as you can see, it looks like a mess. <laughs> There yeah. is no rhyme or reason. There, there is just no... no good description of a milpa garden. Other the chaos is the key term, I think. Yeah, exactly. It, there's no rows. Uh, everything is just growing and and benefiting each other. Um, and so it's it's kind of a fun thing. And and for Mark, uh, he sees us as an extension of his faith. 
and his commitment to the community to to do something for others. You know, it's interesting when I was reading about these and looking at some other examples, that connection to community, we in agriculture talk about how do we reach out to this community? Rural communities are less and less connected to the farm. This might be one way that a farmer who wants to uh, build up the soil profile in an area or maybe add pollinators to his farm in one area could turn to a chaos garden, right? Right. Mark specifically chooses bits of his fields, acres of his fields that are close to the road, close to an easily traversed road, um, I should say, and places where there's easily places to pull off um, your car on the side of the road so you're safe and getting out and, and tromping through the field. And um, they've, he, like I said, he's had a lot of buy-in from the community. There have been families that take their children out and um, they'll pick pumpkins when the pumpkins are in season mm -hmm. and they'll decorate them and put them online. Uh, there's folks that'll make pies out of out of whatever um, zucchini they find out of their, well, not pies, but cakes from zucchini. And um, it's a really great way to help kids really connect to the vegetables that are on their plate. And as we know um, from past experience, when a kid sees something growing, has the ability to, to pick it off the vine, take it home, learn how to cook it up, they're going to eat those vegetables a little bit easier than if we just served them up in a school cafeteria. Yeah, there's that possibility. So what does he do with that acre? I mean, he's moving it around the farm, which makes sense. And he could actually do some unique soil health improvements and some dead spots, which happen. Um, how does he terminate it or turn it back over? And what has happened over the winter when it's been picked over? Right. So first off, he is a wheat farmer and, and he also grows soybeans and corn. So in Kansas, he'll cut the wheat about May, June time, and then he'll plant this Milpa Garden cover crop mix. And uh, he will uh, typically he'll he'll go in and spray with um, select to kill the volunteer wheat. Winter kill will terminate this cover crop. So, you know, after everybody has gone through and harvested what they're going to harvest, uh, he lets nature take over and, and that'll that'll kill this cover crop. And then next spring, he'll either plant soybeans or plant corn. Um, he doesn't graze it right now because he doesn't run cattle himself. However, as we know, there's a lot of folks in Kansas that are looking for grazing acres um, just because we're, we're so low on forage and, and the drought has us looking for other opportunities. And so he's not opposed to leasing this out to, to grazers to come in with cattle and clear off everything. In fact, he's done it before. Um, but like I said, it, it, it really is... Uh, he he lets Mother Nature take over. <laughs> now, Mother Nature has her own grazers, too. I'm sure deer and other wildlife love the pumpkins and squash and greenery that's left. Oh, for sure. People are gone. So that helps it, too. I mean, we're only talking an acre here, so it's not a huge part of his farm. Um, uh, does he see the opportunity to go bigger or is it because of the community connection he could overwhelm that situation? I think for him right now, yeah, there's always that possibility he could grow bigger. But for him right now, it's the one acre uh, is is just the right spot. Uh, he sees a lot of folks in the community finding enjoyment from it. And we'll see if there's more demand. He may go bigger, but really for him, it's the cover crop. He has a different cover crop mix that he puts on the rest of his farm. Mm -hmm. um, this Millpaw Garden, like we said, is just a, an acre, acre and a half. 
and uh, he, he, we'll see where it, where it goes. And I do see it as a really powerful way for farmers to connect to the community, though, especially in times when farmers start to lament that even those people in small rural towns have no idea what's going on on the farm, which is interesting in itself. Um, the other question I had was about just it seems like a great program. Um, and uh, I've heard stories about a little bigger ones put next to resorts. I guess there was one in South Dakota like that. And the resort people could over and pick through it. So I think it's really interesting to connect that way. How do you, how do you see it as an ag journalist when you got this idea or heard about it? What were you thinking? You know, I look at it this way. Um, this is a, a, a process or a, a system that comes from the indigenous people and it was knowledge that they have passed along through generations and i think there's something to be said for going back to what we've learned from people that have been here longer than we have Uh, thanksgiving time in november always reminds me that there are blessings to be had and and things that we need to be grateful for. I I think of the first Thanksgiving dinner um, between the Native Americans and and the pilgrims. And I think about how sharing the bounty of of what we grow out here is really the best way that we have to reach out and and provide friendship and, and, um, you know, build some bridges. I look at it now as today, you know, we we see food prices are are growing or increasing in the stores, and everybody's trying to to stretch their food dollars. A garden like this provides a lot of um, calories in the form of of really good fruits and vegetables that are critical to our our nutritional diets. And I think this is a way that we can in agriculture, help our neighbors stretch their food dollars, build bridges to explain what agriculture is all about, and honor the folks that went before us and um, and their knowledge, and apply it to today and our, and our modern agriculture. Well, that's fantastic, and I really appreciate that perspective. Jenny Lasky with uh, Kansas Farmer, thanks for your time today. This has been very interesting, and I appreciate your work on telling us more about the Millpaw Garden. Thanks, Willie. Excellent insight from Jennifer Latsky on the potential for a milpa or chaos garden. That was fascinating. It was also great to catch up with John Hart as well. And that's part of the fun of this podcast. Sure, we'll interview industry folks about what's happening around the country, but our editors are seeing plenty and what they share adds to the agriculture conversation. And you can make sure you don't miss these conversations with editors and industry leaders. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. And if you have a smart speaker, all you have to do is tell it to listen to Around Farm Progress, and you're going to hear the latest episode. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional brands, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer and Feedstuffs and our events, including the Farm Progress Show, Oscar Harvest Days, the Farm Futures Business Summit, and the New York Farm Show. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening. <music>